Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash MilkStreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash MilkStreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MilkStreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Most Your Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Being back here, and appropriately enough, in a town called Freedom, and kind of finding myself here 
in this space at this place called The Lost Kitchen. I looked back and I was like, oh my God, all those tears I cried. You know, it's like uh, my life was falling apart. It's like I was crying rivers and it like somehow magically brought me to a waterfall. That was Aaron French, the head chef and founder of The Lost Kitchen, a small restaurant located in Freedom, Maine. I sat down with French to discuss how she went from pop-up dinners to owning one of the most exclusive restaurants in America. But first, I interview Washington Post reporter Maura Judkis about the wild, wild world of pumpkin spice. Maura, how are you? I'm well. How are you? You wrote a piece, uh, you're at the Washington Post, you wrote a piece about uh, spending a week buying every pumpkin spice product you could. So let's, let's just talk about some of the strange products. They're kefir, dog treats, <laughs> mm-hmm. although you said your dog liked them. My dogs like everything. Paper towels, <laughs> mm-hmm. gluten-free frozen waffles, <laughs> uh, spray. Um, so w- w- what were the products you enjoyed most, if any, I should um, say? I- <laughs> I ended up liking the yogurts a lot, actually. They were kind of like just pretty simple, a nice way to start the morning, not too sweet. You know, the thing with a lot of these pumpkin spice products is they end up being like just very corn syrupy, very right. sweet, lots of baked goods that don't really have a lot of pumpkin flavor to them. They're just more sugar and nutmeg altogether. And the worst on your list was scented candles, which <laughs> I can't stand under any you know, scenario. But that, that must have been pretty bad, right? <laughs> Those were pretty bad. The, the the absolute worst thing was a can of spray-on pumpkin spice. You know, I've never seen anything like this before. It's like, it's organic, first of all, but it's in this can. It looks like a can of hairspray. And you can just drench anything in the flavor of pumpkin spice. You could put it on anything. You could put it on toast. You could put it in something horrible like wine if you wanted. Um, and it really just tastes like you sprayed an air freshener directly into your mouth. <laughs> well, I bet some people buy it. So obviously, I'm certain. there is a market for everything. So let's just back up. So Starbucks sells $80 million in annual revenue in pumpkin spice products. Is that right? Mm, it's by far their most popular seasonal drink. And I, I don't get this. You, you referred to pumpkin spice as a lifestyle. So <laughs> what, uh, I, I know with tongue in cheek, but what mm-hmm. is it about pumpkin spice? Why, why pumpkin spice? I don't get it. It's just sort of become this thing. Like it's, it's like, I kind of call it the pumpkin spice industrial complex. You know, it just becomes bigger and bigger every year, more products. It starts earlier and earlier. And it's kind of brought up this whole class of merch, like pumpkin spice merch. People really love to proudly declare that they're very into pumpkin spice. You know, I saw these shirts that say pumpkin spice is my favorite season or I like pumpkin spice a latte or leggings, boots and pumpkin spice. And people um, people are just really, really into declaring their love for this particular seasonal flavor. So uh, philosophically speaking, what is this telling you about American culture and where we're headed? (laughs) Um, I think it's, it is a comfort for people to have this favorite drink of theirs, and it makes it very special that you can only have it a certain time of year. It's only in stores for about two months. And I think that that's something that people look forward to. And while it's really not my favorite drink, quite frankly, having done this story, I really never want to have anything pumpkin spice ever again. I think that, you know, there there is something to the fact that it's very, very comforting to people to have this particular blend of flavors, and it makes them feel very warm and nostalgic and maybe loved. So so pumpkin spice is about love. <laughs> okay, well... That, well, it's also about making money, I think, too. <laughs> um, so this got started in 19... You said 1936. There was a recipe actually in the Washington Post. Is that right? Yeah, well, that ended up being a big surprise to us. So we, uh, you know, in researching for this story, I was very curious to see what the very first reference to pumpkin spice was. And I did a nexus search, and uh, the first thing that came up actually was a 1936 recipe that ran in the Washington Post. And it was like, it was a very strange recipe. Um, It, at one point, referred to pumpkin as, quote, a food of the Italian peasantry, and it was it was a recipe that, you know, we ended up remaking the original recipe, um, and it called for 
so much shortening, a full teaspoon of mace, raisins. It mm. wanted the recipe, um, it wanted the cakes to start in a cold oven. And it ended up being this like incredibly dense loaf that had this very overwhelming taste of mace. But it was very curious to find out that, um, that you know, in a way, we at the Washington Post are the cause of some of this pumpkin spice madness. So th- this became a blend of cinnamon, clove, nutmeg, and ginger. Is that really what the essence of this is? Now, today? Yeah, cinnamon, clove, nutmeg, ginger, allspice. You know, I mean, different products have varying levels of each of those flavors. And at Starbucks, this is just a flavored syrup they put into it? Is that how they do it? It is, yeah. And actually, for a while, it didn't even contain pumpkin. And when people found out about that, they were upset. And so now I think it contains like a trace amount of pumpkin. Well, I don't think most people like pumpkin, actually. <laughs> I mean, isn't butternut squash what's in <laughs> mm-hmm. most cans of pumpkin for the holidays anyway? I mean, <laughs> uh, so uh, l- let's go back to your week. Um, how is the mm-hmm. week? You, you kept going every day to buy stuff for the supermarket. But what, what about non-edibles? What, what kind of non-edibles were there? Well, the best thing I ended up trying, um, or I wouldn't say it's the best. It's kind of just the weirdest. Um, I ended up buying a pumpkin spice scented deodorant, uh, which oh. was very strange. Yeah. And so uh, it's from this company called Native, and it popped up. You know, I made a pledge to myself that I would buy any pumpkin spice thing that crossed my path, whether in a grocery store or online. And this, I think it showed up as an ad on Facebook or something. And so I bought it and it arrived and it definitely smelled kind of like vanilla or nutmeg. It was hard to really place the scent of it. But um, it is very strange to tell people that you're wearing pumpkin spice deodorant. Well, did you find love? (laughs) Uh, Or did someone ask you, what's that funny smell? Well, my husband thought it was vanilla, but I I made him guess. I didn't tell him what it was. And I think it smelled a little bit more like nutmeg. But quite frankly, I think I'll just stick to regular deodorant from now on. So so the the one question I, I will leave here is what's mm-hmm. next? I mean this everything runs the gamut right at some point. Although though pumpkin mm-hmm. spice has been has held on for quite some time. How long has Starbucks been offering it, do you know? Starbucks has been doing it since 2003, so it's going strong yeah. for 15 years. Although there've been some there's been some research recently that the pumpkin spice market is not growing as quickly as in previous years. Oh no. Um, That's so I terrible. guess yeah, I know. <laughs> so there, you know, the dollar sales of pumpkin flavor items were actually at a peak in 2017, but the growth year over year has been much slower over the past few years. So it does appear that the pumpkin spice market is kind of slowing down. So I guess we'll see what happens this year. It seems like it happens earlier and earlier. Maybe people will ease off on the August pumpkin spice release of products. I'm not really sure. Well, it'll be, this is my prediction, fruitcake. <laughs> I mean, you, you don't want to eat fruitcake, but maybe that's a nice <laughs> spice. Or mincemeat, that'll barely do it. A nice mincemeat latte. <laughs> Maura, thank you so much. Uh, an update from the pumpkin spice wars. Uh, it's still going strong. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That was Maura Judkis, reporter at The Washington Post. Her article is called I used every pumpkin spice product I could find for a week. Now my armpits smell like nutmeg. Mill Street Radio is also available as a podcast. You can subscribe, download our shows, and listen whenever you want. New shows are available every Friday on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. Right now, my co-host Sarah Moth and I will be taking your calls. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah Moulton, how are you? I'm good, and I'm ready to hear what people want to know. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Steve Golden from Chicago. Hi, Steve. How are you? I'm good. How can we help you? I've been wondering if there's a rule of thumb for how to use water. With potatoes, you're supposed to put cold potatoes in cold water and bring them to a boil until they're soft. And with eggs, you put cold eggs in cold water until they're hard. Yeah. And in pasta, you boil the water and then put it in. And I've noticed that you've been talking a lot recently about water by itself as an ingredient. That's an excellent question. You're a philosopher, sir. 
I, I like that. That's one of those things that keeps you up at night. I would say cold water for potatoes is so the potatoes don't fall apart. So they cook evenly because otherwise evenly. they'll get mushy. If you throw them into boiling water, right. the, the outside, outside will get cooked before the inside is cooked. And for eggs, it's just a really good way to time the cooking time. Pasta, obviously, there's no benefit in starting in cold water. Because it would get mushy as yeah. heck by the time it came you, up you to a boil. Time it. I think a lot of it's about not overcooking the outside and timing the cooking would be why you would sometimes use either boiling water or cold water. You also think about pasta, and it's much thinner than either a potato or an egg. So that's why you want to just throw it into already boiling water, because it's not going to be in there for very long anyway. There is a trick to that, which is use less water than you think, and then the starch from the pasta gets into the water, and you can use that water to make the sauce cling to your pasta. So right. less water is good. Give us a couple more examples of anomalous uses of water. You know, like with rice, you cook it till the water's gone away. Um, <laughs> That's a good one, actually. <laughs> that sounds so you know, poetic. Yeah, that is very, uh, <laughs> that's a koan. And, yeah. You know, and then there's your new way of cooking a um, chicken. Yep, throw in the water. Put it in water and you end up with a cooked chicken and stock. You know, with our potato and egg and pasta, we throw it away in a soup. The water becomes the right. meal. I guess I would go back to the beginning of time when water really was the cooking medium. That's the only thing. And it's a great thing because it's a fairly low temperature and it's consistent. You know, the timing is going to be perfect. It's a fairly gentle way of cooking. You know, I have a couple of water tips if you Yeah, I'd love to hear them. Let's hear them. You always hear when you make pasta, keep a cup or so of the water. Yep. What I like to do is drain the water into your serving bowl, and then Heat the when bowl. you're ready to serve, dump out that. Yeah, that's a good tip. You know, you've got as much water as you want, and then when you put that out, your serving bowl is piping hot. Yeah, Brilliant. Excellent. I'll just leave you with one last thing. We just were in Italy doing a cacio e pepe, cheese and pepper pasta, and yeah. we came back here and we couldn't get it to work because the cheese always got gluey and, you know, was nasty. It turned out it wasn't the cheese. It was that in Italy, they cook a lot of pasta and water, so it's full of starch. So that starch kept the cheese from clumping together. So our solution was to use less water to cook the pasta and adding a little cornstarch when we melted the cheese in water. So starch in water, when you cook something like pasta, is an essential ingredient to a lot of recipes especially a, a cheese-based sauce. Right. In that case, the water was the binder with the starch that, that allowed the cheese not to bind together. So, at any rate, Steve, thank you for calling. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> I feel much well, better about it. I do, talking too. To you guys. <laughs> Thanks so much. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye now. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a burning culinary question or just want to debate the merits of bay leaves, give us a call anytime at 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Chris. Hi, Chris. Where are you calling from? Columbus, Wisconsin. Oh, nice. And how can we help you today? So I just want to ask about, you know, different non-traditional meat sources like tongue and, you know, kidney and how would I prepare, you know, if I wanted to make, uh, you know, beef tongue sandwiches, how do I do it? Well, you simmer the tongue uh, in liquid, you know, with aromatics if you want, you know, vegetables. Uh, you could add some pickling spices if you want, maybe a little bit of wine. Simmer it gently for hours. It depends on how large it is is roughly about 50 minutes, 50, 60 minutes a pound. I would do it like patofa or tafelspitz, which is the Austrian version of patofa, which is you cook it in a flavored water. You know, or, you could or a broth, chicken broth. Or broth. Yeah, chicken broth, beef broth. Very low simmer, mm -hmm. barely simmering, and cook it for probably a couple hours, something like that, till it's cooked. That's how I would do it. 50, 60 minutes a pound. And then you peel it, and you do that while it's still warm. It's easier. And then um, place where I worked, we'd throw it back into the cooled, somewhat cooled broth just to keep it moist. You know, keep it like that and then slice it as we needed it. 
Another really good one is rabbit. Rabbit is rabbit's very lean, but uh-huh. um, you know you just don't overcook it or you gently stew it. No, no, you have to do the same thing. The legs, first of all, the front legs don't have much meat, so it's the back legs you braise, and then you cook the tenderloin, the strap, for about six minutes yeah, at the end. Yeah, you can't cook both of them at the same time. Right. Yeah, we do a lot of pressure cooking of rabbit and then deboning mm. and then putting the deboned meat into whatever we're going to make. The pressure cooker has been our best friend and ally for yeah. rabbit, squirrel, and uh, duck. Yeah. Really? Oh, you are serious. That's squirrel. A, I've, that's, never, that's, I've never thought about doing that. That's yeah, a good that's idea. the old Brunswick stew, right? Wasn't that the original oh, protein? Yeah. Well, no, Brunswick stew was whatever you could catch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> my daughter calls it squirrel chicken uh, because she likes it so much. Well, I have to say I've never eaten squirrel. I have. Does it taste like chicken? The red squirrel? Yeah, your red squirrel, gray squirrel, red squirrel. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess. I mean, it's it's what... It's not people, real gamey? No, back in the 70s and 80s in Vermont, I had neighbors who did hunt everything, including that. Hmm. Woodchuck, eat woodchucks too. A little greasy. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> okay, then. Squirrels like dark meat chicken with kind of a nutty flavor. Oh, I'd like that. I just okay. want to tell you good. what it is. That's all. Hmm. So you ask for seconds. Yeah. So there you go. I think uh, pressure cooker is actually of this yeah. conversation the best idea. That yeah, came that's out. exciting. That's a good idea. I'm going to check that out. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. Thank you guys very much. Enjoy your show. Okay, okay. Thanks. So Sarah, next time I have a couple extra squirrel, I'm going to just invite me over. I'll be there. Stop by. I'll try. I'll try. Uh, you can try anything once. It's fine. It's not a lot of meat on it, but it's better than guinea pig. You've eaten guinea pig? Greasy, bony. Oh, dear. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my conversation with Aaron French, head chef and owner of The Lost Kitchen in Freedom, Maine. We'll be right back. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Today, I chat with Aaron French at a restaurant, The Lost Kitchen in Freedom, Maine. Her small eatery, located in a renovated mill next to a waterfall, is off a small side street in the town that is easy to miss. To get a reservation, one has to send in a postcard in April, and names are chosen by lottery. Of the 20,000 requests, less than half get a seat at the table. I went to Freedom to ask Erin how she went from pop-up dinners cooked out of a 1965 Airstream to founding one of the most exclusive eateries in America. Erin, how are you? I'm great. How are you? It's great to be here. In Freedom, Maine, in the middle of nowhere, sort of. Um, so you had a family diner. Yes. Um, what was the name of the diner? Ridgetop Restaurant. It's like named after a Jesse Colin Young song. My parents oh. were hippies. <laughs> oh, that, so, so your parents were hippies back in the 70s? In yeah. Maine? Really? Yeah. I was a hippie back in the 70s. <laughs> I, I was in Vermont. I wasn't in Maine. So what about the food? Was this a lot of homegrown food? Did you have chickens, the whole thing? Or? We had chickens. Um, we had a garden. We had a lot of potatoes. It was kind of the big crop. Um, peas, peppers, cucumbers, all of those kind of things. And lots of people coming over for communal dinners? No, not really. Um, everyone was so busy. It's not like we weren't like an entertaining household because my dad was working at the restaurant 16 hours a day. My mom was a school teacher. So it was kind of just these rushed dinners by mom while dad was at home in the evening, which would usually be like running out to the garden and grabbing some spinach and poaching an egg and throwing some bacon into it. And it's like, okay, that's dinner tonight, whatever you can get in the garden. But when you worked at the diner, your dad's diner, that was... That was burgers, right? I mean, you were that was typical diner food, or was that a hippie diner? Oh, yeah. No, it was typical diner, fried fish baskets, burgers, meatloaf, roast chicken, roast pork, all of those kinds of things. So working in the diner actually motivated you to go into the restaurant business? It didn't cure you of being in the restaurant business? No, that's kind of funny. Actually, working in the diner, when I started working there, was probably 12 when I started cleaning up after my dad and 14 when he finally let me start to work on the grill. And... If anything, it just made me want to get away from food and want to get away from here and try to find something else. But it's funny, once I got away, I started to appreciate this place and wanted nothing but to just get home and then kept finding food again and coming, coming back to food and coming back to food because it was familiar and made me feel good. So you wanted to come back. You, um, 
you did have a previous restaurant, right? Mm-hmm. It was in, in an old bank or in the, in the basement of an old bank. It, yeah. Where was that? What town was that? Um, I had a restaurant in Belfast, which is on the coast, 20 minutes from here, um, which kind of started, it actually started as a supper club because when I was turning 30, I had this mini 30 midlife crisis of like, what am I doing with my life? What am I contributing? And I had nothing to show but food. And so I said, okay, I'm going to make a go of food and started this little supper club in my apartment because I had no money. And slowly it sort of mushroomed and people started to hear about it and show up. And then I got a little more confidence that maybe I could make a go at this, open a restaurant. So I had my first restaurant in Belfast in 2011. So I do want to ask you, so you, you went away briefly, you came back. Yeah. The keys, the locks have been changed on the restaurant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you, so you went from having your own restaurant to not having your own yeah, restaurant. Yeah, to having like a suitcase full about of About like, 30 seconds. Yeah, right? just like that. Right. Everything gone. So you came back to Freedom... How well were your parents? What, what were they doing when you came back? Um, you know, my parents were, my mom had retired from teaching. My dad had sold the restaurant and they were supposed to be just enjoying retirement. And then their grown daughter moves back in and then tried to figure out like, well, I can't just stop. What am I going to do? And I have this restaurant, but I don't have it anymore. But I have me and I don't have any walls and I don't have a space. And that's when I found this old Airstream. I gutted and turned into my living quarters and also a mobile kitchen that I started to travel around and sort of bring back the supper club that I had started years before that. So let's just talk about freedom. It's, what, 700 people? 719. Yeah. So that's small. Um, We drove through freedom and we didn't realize we did. Uh, (laughs) But it was, we went by the, the main convenience store. And this is two and a half hours north of Portland or something like that. Yeah, we're about an hour, hour 45 north from Portland. So... You're 30 years old. You're in a very small town. What's, what's that like? When I came home for the second time, it was really because I had no choice. Um, it threw me there because financially I didn't have a penny. I you know, had lost my home. I'd lost my business. And so it was like, okay, this is just survival mode. And then you know, when you start to look around and realize that like, this is my home and this is a place that I love so much and how can I nurture my life here and live a good life here and, you know, just figure out how to move forward. And, you know, for me, it's, if you had told me that this is what I'd be doing with my life, I would have said, there's no way. You can't make a living in freedom. You're told that you have to get away. You have to go to the city. You have to, you know, get out of here to be successful and to survive. And, you know, that's not the case anymore. So you're open half the year, roughly, or a little more? Yes, we uh, our our normal schedule is beginning of May till New Year's Eve, um, and we're open four nights a week. So people come to dinner uh, from all over, but you don't serve wine in the dining room. So you have a wine cellar. So just give us a sense of what of actually going through the meal here at the Lost Kitchen. Yeah, we have um, strangely enough in the town called Freedom, we have old prohibition laws that are still in place. So we are not allowed to pour wine, but we found a way around that, and it's worked out really great. We were able to turn some of our basement space into a wine cellar. So guests arrive around five thirty. Uh, they head to the wine cellar where we have all of our lovely ladies there, greeting them, and they'll share the menu for the night because no one knows what they're having. It's basically like going to your friend's house and not knowing what she's making for dinner until you get there. Um, So we help pick out and pair wines and share the menu and then send everyone upstairs to the dining room for dinner at 6 o'clock. And then we just have about three and a half hours of food that just starts coming out. Everyone just sits back and relaxes and pours their own wine. And they don't have to think about anything. And that's what I love about this experience. The only decision they have to make is if they want coffee or tea. And that's it. Oh, I like that. I don't like, I don't like big menus. I get overwhelmed. Yeah. You, know, you go out and she's like, I just want to relax. And I have to sit here and stress over this menu. And it's got two sides or four pages. And I just want to talk with my friends and enjoy and just have beautiful food come out. Um, so let's talk about food. I mean, the food world has exploded, imploded in the last 10 or 15 years. There's every possible style. There's a mix from all over the world. Uh, your cookbook, I would say, has simplicity of concept probably is the thing that really stands out and a certain grace to the food. If you were to describe, which is probably a stupid question, but if you were to describe your cooking what is your cooking? Yeah, that's one I've struggled for because, um, you know, I feel like it's a blend 
Um, it's representative of me, but I'd say that the best, if I could give you a term, I'd just say it's kind of a modern version of farmhouse cooking. And, and farmhouse, there's lots of different kinds of farmhouses. There are farmhouses in Alabama, there are farmhouses mm-hmm. in Vermont. Is this New England? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Um, you know, all of the ingredients that inspire me are the ingredients. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. (laughs) Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are and I think that makes it very food friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it you're reminded like oh wow Yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. That I open my eyes to every day. So, you know, whether it's seafoods that are, are right from here, um, any of the produce, I, all of my cooking is 100% driven by ingredients. I never make a menu and then go searching for ingredients. I let the ingredients come, and then it's my job to figure out how to combine them and how to put them together. 
let's talk about some basics. So you have a bread salad, for example, in the book. Just talk about using bread or leftover bread. Because in a lot of places in the world, you know, they make soups out of bread, obviously, like Lob Lobby. They make croutons out of bread with some olive oil and salt and a skillet. If you're talking to someone who's a home cook, how do you think about using bread in, in a different way? You know, for me, I'm pretty simple with it. So I'm always first using the first slice to just slather with butter and good salt and eat it that way. And then taking the scraps. And again, just um, I love doing skillet croutons, whether serving it with salads or chickens or making bread puddings. Um, those would be, you know, it's, I'm pretty old fashioned. This is like grandmother food. That's like my version of it. Uh, chicken. So the, I'm sure you have a local supplier for chicken. But if you go into the supermarket and you can find Bell and Evans or something, you know, it's okay. But do you have some tricks for grilling chicken or roasting chicken? Is it to salt it and let it stand for a while, brining, yeah. or you just have to start with a great chicken? Um, well, great chicken is obviously key. Uh, if you can find someone who's actually, you know, a local person doing it, the, the difference is just unreal compared to supermarket chicken. But if you can't, yeah, go with organic or just the best all natural you can get. But brining is amazing. Uh, it's easy and you just um, steep it overnight and the flavor will just wow everyone. And yeah, roasting, lots of salt. Salt and butter are my big keys for roasting and salting the cavity and just um, keeping the skin really dry. You said this is applewood grilled spring chicken already. It says in a large pot over medium heat, this is after you've brined the bird overnight, bring the chicken and brine to a slow boil, reduce the heat and simmer until just cooked through. So you brine overnight, and instead of just taking the birds out of the brine, you heat the brine? Well, what, explain yeah. that to me. Okay, so this is a little hostess trick because the worst thing you want to do is have your friends come over and you're grilling and it's already challenging. It's open flames. You know, you're fighting that. You don't want to worry if the chicken's cooked through. So you actually pre-cook, kind of oh. par-cook that chicken a little bit in the brine. So you have the flavor. And then all you have to worry about doing is just browning it and, you know, getting it looking good on the grill. I didn't think you'd ever use the term hostess trick. You don't look like the kind of person who would say hostess. I, that sounds very hostess. 50s. I always feel like I'm a hostess. Like, I'm not, I don't feel like a chef. I feel like I'm a hostess. That's what I am. That's what I really feel like. Like, this is what I was born to do. It's just like, have people over for dinner. I just want to be a hostess. It feels really, I do the flower arrangements, you know, pressing the napkins. That's, that's my joy. Um, spoon cakes, rhubarb spoon cake. You have cakes made in skillets. You also have a sort of tart tatin or upside down cake with pears. So, if, if, if someone wanted to, people always ask me, you know, how do I cook without a recipe? And I say, don't. But in baking, it's particularly hard. But, but a, a, a upside-down cake or a cast-iron cake, fruit cake, skillet cake, are there some just a basic recipe for that? I mean, how do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, for me, I baking, yeah, follow a recipe. Don't, don't mess with it unless you are really trying to develop something, which if you're at home, you're probably not trying to do that. You just want something that's going to work and you don't want to waste your ingredients. So for me, coming up with a couple of staple cake recipes, but then playing with it and working with whatever you have for fruit. So you don't have to be like, oh, well, I don't have pears. Well, that's okay. Use peaches or apples. And um, so it's kind of a free form cake. But if you have that basic batter recipe, have a few good ones, have something cornmeal-y, have something vanilla-like, you know, have a few of those tricks up your sleeve and then make it your own as far as fruit. Go from there. So you, you would cook the fruit, caramelize it in the bottom of the pan with some sugar and butter, then add the batter. I think one of your batters was half cornmeal and half all-purpose, Yeah, which sounded very good. Yeah, it's nice because that sort of keeps it fluffy, so it's not like this overbitey cake. Um, you want to have a little bit of, of fluff to it, so that all-purpose helps cut that a bit. You have a pork burger recipe, of course. Everyone's got to have a burger recipe, and you put something on it that's a little different. Yeah, peaches. Peaches are surprising. And then more bacon, so it's like pork, pork, um, which always makes things better, and blue cheese. I, I love pork and peaches, and it's just summery, and it's a little different, and uh, yeah, it's, I think it's a really nice combo. Was there a moment in this process, there probably was a lot, where either things looked really bleak, or the first time you thought you were going to make it, that just sort of sums up this experience for you? <sighs> wow. That's a, that's a hard one. I mean, there's plenty of moments when I thought I wasn't going to make it. Yeah, um, probably after, after I, I lost that first restaurant, I, I was just like, 
I, I was spinning. I didn't, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know if I was going to live. Um, there were some very, very dark days. And part of coming home was the salve for that. And food also got me through that. Um, so just kind of discovering myself through food and being back home and being around my friends and my family and just moving forward together. So I'm 67, still haven't found myself. You're half my age or something like that, 37. And you have, and you've done it fairly quickly, and you've done it, you come out of a very difficult experience. How, were you, did you always know who you were and were very centered? Or is the process of building this lost kitchen here in the mill, was that what, what got you there? Yeah, um, no, I, I, I feel like I've, I've just figured out who I am. 30 was kind of the mark of where I knew that I hadn't, and it was terrifying. But, you know, I really needed to hit a really hard wall and have my life fall apart, I think, in order to find myself. It, it basically started me at ground zero. So being back here, and appropriately enough, in a town called Freedom, and kind of finding myself here in this space at this place called the Lost Kitchen. And I look back and I was like, oh my God, all those tears I cried. You know, it's like, uh, my life was falling apart. And it's like, I was crying rivers and it like somehow magically brought me to a waterfall. That was Erin French, head chef and owner of the Lost Kitchen. Her cookbook is called The Lost Kitchen, Recipes and a Good Life Found in Freedom, Maine. You know, my wife and I did have dinner at the Lost Kitchen. Aaron prepares the food at a stove in the dining room, handling five or six courses, plating food, and on that particular evening, she cooked 45 lamb chops in two batches and cast iron skillets. And she didn't break a sweat. Yes, the ingredients were local. Yes, the food was beautifully plated. Yes, the combinations of flavors and textures were first rate. But it's intent, the spirit in which the food is harvested, prepared, cooked, and served, that makes the Lost Kitchen special. You know, good food is an invitation to share a life, not just dinner. And Aaron French has a great life to share. Right now, I'm heading into the kitchen in Milk Street to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, Spanish almond cake. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. So we're talking about flourless cakes today, but this is an almond cake, not chocolate, which, of course, is that 1980s standby in every restaurant. Yeah. And this comes from Spain. So is this a traditional recipe in Spain? It's a traditional recipe in a region of Spain called Galicia. We went to a bakery there called Casamora. It's called the Tarta de Santiago. It's a flourless almond cake, really simple one bowl cake. If I were to describe it, I would say it's almost like if you took a French macaron and made it into a cake. It has kind of uh, chewy but dense texture, but somehow the density is not leaden. It's kind of a light dense, if that makes sense. Well, macaroons are light dense. Exactly. And I'm kind of light dense, too. So <laughs> this is the perfect cake for me. So you said it's a one bowl cake. So how do you make it? So traditionally made with whole eggs. We found we couldn't get the lightness we wanted from whole eggs. We tried separating the eggs, so whisking egg yolks with sugar and then whipping egg whites separately. It was really hard to incorporate the whites into this base. This base is really, really thick, almost like Play-Doh with the almond flour in it. So we couldn't really get the whites to really give us the lightness we were looking for. So we tried something interesting by using whole eggs and then just adding extra egg whites. So that allowed us to incorporate that air we wanted, but kept it really Really simple, all in one bowl. Is this baked in a cake pan or a springform pan? Or how do you bake it? So first we mix those eggs together with sugar, almond extract, vanilla extract, salt, and then you whisk that really vigorously for about 45 seconds and then add the almond flour. It goes into a cake pan, just a nine-inch prepared cake pan, and we top it with a combination of chopped almonds and turbinado sugar. That mm -hmm. creates sort of a crispy crust on it. Some of these historically are baked with an actual crust, like a shortbread crust. So this was our way to mimic that. It bakes for about 50 minutes or so. And then you take it out, you let it cool, you stand around, you want to eat it, but you have to wait. You should let it cool completely. It's a really good idea. It's a different texture, warm and cool. So a Spanish almond cake, it's flourless. It's a one-bowl cake. Just bake it in a cake pan. It's a macaroon in the form of a cake. Thank you. You're welcome. You can get this recipe for Spanish almond cake on 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. 
Coming up, more of your culinary questions and conundrums with my co-host, Sarah Bolton. We'll be right back. If you enjoy Milk Street Radio, please take a moment to review us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your other favorite podcast app. This helps other people find the show and encourages them to listen. Thanks. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to take a few more calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah, you ready for a uh, new batch of questions? Yes, Chris, I am very ready. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Karen Berry from Portland. How can we help you? I have been gathering teaspoons, tablespoons, you know, measuring sets for years. And now that I'm retired, I decided, well, I which, wonder which one is actually accurate. And they all disagree with each other. So I was hoping you might have a method that will let me know which ones I can get rid of and which ones I should keep. Do you have a digital scale? Yes. Okay, then you're good to go. Just look up the weight of a tablespoon of fill-in-the-blank, oh, like table salt. Brilliant. Uh, measure the various, use the different spoons for measuring and see how they weigh. But would you bring up a really good point. I felt the same thing, even measuring cups, like the dry cups. Oh, yeah, they're not yeah. the same. They're totally different. They're, they're off like the 10 same. or 15%. But here's the other really big problem. I mean, it doesn't matter. You just decide what you're going to work with. But there is no international standard for what one cup of flour should weigh. Yeah, so the Europeans say one thing. King Arthur flour says 120 grams. Somebody else says something else. So whatever well, you do, you just... it depends on the flour, too. Yes, it does. So you have to decide who's going to be your barometer, whose measurements you're going to use. I use King Arthur flour just because I think they're very uh, reliable. And they say one cup equals 120 grams, so one sixteenth of a cup would be one tablespoon if we're going by weight. So what standard do you use? I'm asking Chris now because we, Well, at Milk Street, we did a few issues ago. We actually weighed a whole bunch of flowers. We mm-hmm. looked at 15 different sources, tried to come up with an approximate, and then we weighed it 10 or 15 times ourselves. So we published that. What do you say one cup of AP flour weighs? It's five ounces. An ounce is 137 grams. Is that correct? Something like that? So that's more than King Arthur flour. They it's say 120. Ounces. Yeah, in, in pastry, cake flour is 4.2 or 3 ounces. Bread flour is five and a half ounces, something like that. I don't remember the exact grams. We measure everything in grams now, so instead of using wine. Yeah, and I do sourdough baking with rye bread mostly, so it matters. Yeah, it does. Yeah. All baking, the flour Mm. should definitely be Mm -hmm. weighed. I thought that the volume measurement was fine, and then years ago we had 10 people measure a cup of flour. They were all different. When oh we did, my. when we did, totally this, when we did this King Arthur flour, there's 20 of us in a class. That's how they started the class. Yeah. Everybody uh-huh. measure a cup of flour. We went up to the front of the room. It went range from like four ounces to seven. Really? What a difference that makes in a recipe. Wow. Whether depending on whether people packed it, leveled it, yeah, right. when you scooped level it. the top, if you compact the flour into the cup, yeah, you get a much higher weight. Right. So I should do the same thing with my larger measuring. Yes. Cup. Yes. Well, thanks for calling. That was an easy one. That was. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Take care. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you have a cooking failure complaint or if you just want to try to stump us, give us a call at 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Kathy Pentec. Hi, Kathy. How can we help you? Well, I frequently buy um, whole chickens because I like to cook them. You know, they're inexpensive. You get yep. a few meals out of them. And I roast them or I make soup. And I normally take the giblets and throw them away, and I feel terrible. Is there something better I could do with them, especially with the liver? Well, they're going to be two diametrically opposed answers to this question. So I'll let Sarah go first. <laughs> Well, Sarah? I treat the livers. The livers are in a class by themselves. The gizzards are good in stock. Chris never makes stock, but they really beef up the flavor or chicken up the flavor of chicken stock. So it's great to, you know, you could accumulate a whole bunch. And then if you happen to make a chicken stock, which you can make with the leftover bones from the chicken that you've been roasting, throw those guys in. The livers are wonderful. Accumulate them in the freezer. And then what we used to do, I worked at this restaurant in Boston, is we would saute them up, add a few shallots, garlic, thyme. In oil, they pop like crazy. So wear your armor, you know, or have a spatter guard. First we dipped them in flour. And then we would remove them from the pan, deglaze the pan with white wine, heavy cream, Dijon mustard, 
And then we put them back in and finish cooking, and they're delicious. I made was that this, for brunch. Was this perhaps a French restaurant? I'll be quiet. <laughs> I knew, I, that's why we're going to fight here. But I wanted to tell you about my Jewish mother-in-law. She'd roast a chicken, and she uh-huh. would save the gizzards in the freezer, and then she'd make something she called chicken fricassee. She'd take uh-huh. all those gizzards, not the liver. Liver, she'd make chopped liver out of, because liver will make things bitter if you add it. It has to be on its own. She'd saute those guys up, and then she'd make some little meatballs and add those to it, and then add some chicken broth and simmer the whole thing and with some chicken wings. And it was just a yummy first course. Yeah, and very um, economical was the idea. You could even, you know, make that into a meal, put it on top of rice or potatoes or something. Okay, Chris. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Now now I have to ask the question, are you someone who feels guilty a lot? Yes, I do. Okay, (laughs) see, I could tell. We all throw out way too much food, so I applaud Whatever's motivating you. I, I do too, but you have to really ask yourself the question, will you accumulate? Gizzards are yummy. Well, I know, but the reality is, as you all know, three or four months later, you're going through your freezer, see these, these little bags of gizzards, and you throw them out. No, I'm sure Kathy has a better plan. I'm supportive, but on the other hand, there are easier solutions. But anyway, <laughs> once it goes in the freezer, it doesn't come out. Okay. All right. Well, we don't agree, well, Kathy, but I've given you lots of good ideas. Yes. That sounds wonderful. And that sounds like the liver sounds delicious. Yeah. Look, I, just say one thing. That. I mean, you do need quite a few livers, chicken livers, to make a meal. Yeah. Well, she could supplement with a small package from the store. That's a great idea. Yeah. That's if you could see idea. Sarah's or, face right now. Or what I do for the <laughs> husband sometimes when I, I'm roasting a chicken and there's that happy little package, I'll take out just the liver and I'll saute it with garlic and olive oil and thyme, like I said, a rosemary, and then I'll put it on a piece of uh, toast. Toast, exactly. Okay, well that's... Maybe to glaze the pan with a little okay. um, Madeira yeah. or something, just or just even white wine and that's throw a in a little idea. bit of butter and yum yum, there's an hors d'oeuvre. There you go. Okay. Sarah's ending on a high note. That was good. <laughs> Kathy, thanks for calling. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Okay, greatly. Kathy. Sure. Take care. Take care. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. It's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. Here at Milk Street, we're not a great fan of white sugar unless we want other flavors to come through. So here are some other sugars we have in our pantry. The first is palm sugar. This is cooked down from the sap of the coconut palm, and palm sugar tastes earthy and has a really creamy, rich mouthfeel. By the way, it needs to be crushed or dissolved to use. We use it in Thai-style dipping sauces with fish sauce, garlic, and lime juice. We use it in meat glazes. We slather this thickly across grilled or roasted meats just during the last few minutes of cooking. Or you can melt it in your morning oatmeal or use it to sweeten your coffee or tea, either hot or iced. The next kind of sugar is jaggery. This comes from India and it's produced from either sugarcane or date palm sap. Both of these have a maple-like flavor that really tastes great. We don't recommend it for baked sweets, but we do like it when dissolved in a glaze for meats or stirred into rice pudding. The third kind is panela or pioncio. It's a Mexican raw sugarcane. It's earthy, it's rich tasting, and you can substitute it for white or brown sugar. We like it in hot chocolate or coffee tossed with berries, or we like to use it to temper the spiciness of chili or put into a pot of beans. And finally, muscovado sugar. It's a raw, moist cane sugar produced in Mauritius and also the Philippines. We use it in everything from our coffee to blondies, where its flavor comes through nice and clear. For more culinary tips and ideas, please visit us at 177milkstreet.com. Next up, I chat with Dr. Aaron Carroll. Dr. Aaron Carroll, how are you? I'm good. How are you? So we're talking about regulations today, food, habits, soda, what? I've been hearing from too many friends recently worrying about the mercury that they're eating in fish, especially when they may or may not be pregnant, and I thought we could talk about that for a bit. Okay. So clearly mercury is not good for you, and you know it's been eliminated from many of the products that we might ingest, but mercury is a problem, and it does exist in seawater, and while we don't drink much seawater because fish drink a lot of seawater, uh, it's very possible that they are accumulating mercury, and many are, and there's some things that people should and should not know about what they're looking for with respect to fish. So is this the, the tuna fish scare we're talking about here? So tuna is a big one. So mercury, because it's found in water, and it, it really it's hard to get rid of, fish that live longer have higher levels of oh. mercury, and of course, the bigger the fish, the bigger the problem, and when your big fish are eating little fish, they're also eating the mercury in those little fish. Therefore, large, long-lived fish, like sharks and swordfish are the ones that are going to have 
the highest levels of mercury. Um, and of course, we should be concerned about mercury because there's reasonable evidence that when people ingest too much of it, uh, especially pregnant women, it can have effects on their children. But a lot of that is, again, as we've talked about with many other episodes, there's a statistically significant danger, but not necessarily a clinically significant danger. So for every extra sort of microgram that we might find measurable in a pregnant woman's hair, which is how you look for it, um, you see a decrease of about 0.7 points in his or her child's IQ. Um, and that sounds a bit scary, but you got to realize that the vast, 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 vast majority of people would never see that. 90% of pregnant women in the United States have no more than 1.4 micrograms of mercury in their hair. And of course, a, a point or two of IQ is not even going to show up. And the median value of mercury in women is like 0.2. So it's really not there. Um, but still, fish that have you know high levels of mercury theoretically should be avoided and you shouldn't eat them in, in huge amounts. Um, but as always, this has to be a weighed against the positives that might come from eating fish. So there's a lot of observational studies, which are the same kind of data, that show that eating fish that are high in omega-3 fatty acids um, actually could have significant benefits with respect to heart disease, with respect to even neurologic outcomes and, 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 and positives in, in all kinds of respects. And so those need to be weighed against the negatives. Now, one of the things that people need to be concerned about is that a lot of the fish that tend to be high in omega-3 fatty acids um, also tend to be high in mercury, things like tuna. And so people that eat too much tuna theoretically could get concerned about how much mercury they're consuming. So the best bet would be foods that are high in omega-3 fatty acids and low in mercury, things like salmon, herring, and sardines. And you could clearly avoid fish that are low in omega-3 fatty acids and high in mercury. And those tend to be things like grouper, orange roughy, and canned tuna. But in general, when we look at all the research together, there's clearly much more evidence that a modest intake of fish consumption carries far more benefits with respect to a whole host of diseases than any of the fear that you're going to get um, from consuming too much mercury. So, so when they do these studies about fish consumption, is it because someone's consuming more fish and less red meat, or is it strictly on the basis of the fish itself? It's a great question. So some of it is clearly when we talk about things like cardiovascular disease and things like cancer, um, some potential benefit may be from how much fish they are eating versus red meat. However, they still try to do some studies and the best studies would still control for that and actually look at how much fish people are consuming above and beyond, you know, replacing it with some other concerning things like red meat or especially processed red meat. So here, here's the real question, which is, can I have one tuna fish sandwich a week? I think easily that would be no trouble at all. <laughs> That's I mean, you know, again, you have to eat pretty large quantities of this stuff in order to really get into danger. And, and people that are talking about things like once a week, I would consider that moderation in almost any book. So I could have one cup of coffee, one drink of scotch, and one tuna fish sandwich a week. And I, I'm going to no, be... No, 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 you no. Can have, you could have much, much more coffee yeah. and, and even much more scotch as well. More wine, more coffee, more scotch, less tuna fish. Dr. Aaron Carroll, thank you so much. Anytime. Dr. Aaron Carroll is a professor of pediatrics at the Indiana University School of Medicine, also a regular contributor to the New York Times' Upshot column. You know, early in the show, I spoke with Maura Judkis about pumpkin pie spice. She mentioned that Starbucks pumpkin spice latte might be available as early as August. Of course, that made me wonder if holiday promotions can actually start too early. A poll by CNBC found that many young adults liked holidays starting early. Christmas now starts before Halloween. At this rate, the day after Christmas will be the kickoff for next year's Christmas. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late, you can find Milk Street Radio and Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, or Spotify. Remember to please subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every episode downloaded to your phone or tablet each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, head to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch our television show, or order our new cookbook that was just published in September. We'll be back next week, and thanks for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinzabaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak, and production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugertz. 
Additional editing from Vicki Merrick and Cindy Lewis, and audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Tubob Crew. Additional music by George Brennell Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability They'll have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 